Good, well done. Right, that's more than enough of that. And um, my humble apologies to all the introverts who in, in, instantly went into panic mode when I suggested that. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen this Far Side cartoon. There are two, uh, two preachers, maybe JWs, maybe Mormons, uh, maybe evangelicals at the door. And this little old lady has answered the door and said, have you found Jesus? And then if you look carefully, you'll find there's Jesus hiding <laughs> behind the curtain in their living room. I nearly spat my toast across the room when I spread that the first time. Which led me to a thought, where would we find Jesus today? Well, I'll tell you where I don't think we'd find Jesus. You wouldn't find Jesus courting political power. I don't think you'd find Jesus at the front of an army leading people into battle. And I don't think you'd find Jesus wearing skinny jeans in some stadium courting fame. You wouldn't find Jesus at the cool kids' table. You know, the kind of the American movies, the diner. I think you find Jesus sat at the table with the kid with the hand-me-down uniform that doesn't quite fit properly. Sitting with the hurting and with the broken. Sitting with those who feel marginalised, rejected, often mocked. I wonder what is your response to this depiction of Jesus? What welled up within you as I suggest that Jesus would be perhaps sat at that table and maybe not at yours? We're into a section in Matthew's gospel where people are now responding to Jesus. And what we have over these chapters are are people responding both positively and negatively to what they're seeing in Jesus? Ah, you know, I missed the most important bit in all of that. It's to say, sorry, let me rewind. Let me rewind slightly. Jesus sat at the table with the mocked and the marginalized. Because we read in our reading today that... Um, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners, friend of the marginalized. How do you respond to this depiction of Jesus? Jesus says that his generation, this generation, respond like children sitting in the marketplaces, calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We wailed for you and you didn't mourn. Basically, it's a depiction of the being unresponsive. You see, it was men's job to dance at a wedding when the flute was played. And it was the women's job to wail and mourn at a funeral. And here, neither of them are fulfilling their roles. They're sat there in the marketplace passively. 
They're saying, they said, John, you see, he came, he came neither eating or drinking, he came abstaining. And they said, oh, he's got a demon. And then the son of man, that's Jesus, came eating and drinking. And you say, look, he's a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This way or that way, they're sitting on the fence, neither eating nor drinking or eating and drinking. They're not responding. So we have this picture, Jesus prays. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, and you've revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. See, they can't see, they're not responding. They're blind to what is going on around them. And I came across this fascinating quote. It's from a, from a commentary from 1951. Now, we might phrase it slightly differently today, but it said this. Not all clever people are shut out from the kingdom, although some shut themselves out, for it is not intelligence, but the pride of intellectual people that excludes. And it's not all simple folk that are admitted For it's not stupidity, but the humble, the humility of simple-hearted people that qualifies. I was fascinated to read that because I think that in many ways was what I was trying to say a couple of weeks ago when we had our church weekend. We can hide in intellectual ideas. We can intellectualize anything. We can get involved in debate and discussion and this point of view and that point of view. But in some ways, it's, it's a way to hide from getting involved and getting engaged. At some stage, the substance has to move from your brain. It has to take the elevator down, impact your heart, and lead to action. You know, we all have great ideas. We all have, you know, we can pontificate on this and that. But it's important that we practice humility that at some stage it moves to our heart and into action. And then we read this in the the following verse, um, chapter 11, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. It's a strange verse because it reads as if it's just dropped straight out of John's Gospel. If you're familiar with it, it's in the middle of Matthew, but it feels like it's dropped straight out of John. And what Jesus is saying is is to encounter him, to encounter the Son, to encounter Jesus, is to encounter God. To know Jesus is to know God. Um, Pastor Brian Zand, a guy in the States whose books have been particularly helpful to me, puts it like this. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We've not always known what God is like, but now we do. If you want to know what God is like, where God is to be found, look at the person of Jesus. And then we come to that final section of today's reading. Perhaps some of the most famous words in the Bible. 
Come to me, all you who are weary and who are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As I said, perhaps some are many people's favourite few lines in the Bible and easily found hanging in people's houses, embroidered or painted or sewn into ark. I'm sure you've seen them around. Go on to Etsy. You can buy any one of a number of depictions to hang in your home. But in order to really understand this passage and to understand it well, there are two things that you need to know that are kind of background to this passage. And the first is this, that the Messiah, when he would come, the Jewish people believed that when their Messiah came, that he would bring rest for his people. Sabbath rest for his people. We read in the book of Isaiah, the effect will be peace and the result, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in peace, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. You see, when the people of Israel, the Israelites were captive in Egypt, Pharaoh held them down and oppressed them by having them make bricks, cut bricks all day. That was their job, bricks, bricks after bricks after bricks, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And when the Messiah comes and when he liberates them, there would be rest from their work. There would be the day, the Sabbath day off. There would be the once every seven years where the field will lie fallow. There would be the year of Jubilee. There would be rest for the people. And Jesus is saying, I've come to bring you that rest. That rest that you expect to be found in the Messiah is found in me. And then the second thing you need to know is about the yoke. Sorry, wrong yoke. Very bad yoke. This type of yoke. You're familiar with that? For helping to carry a heavy burden. Sorry, I don't know what's, quite, what's going on with this day. It's slow. Um, used to carry a heavy burden. You put it across your shoulders. There was a phrase that existed in the culture of Jesus' time, and they talked about the yoke of the Torah. The Torah were the scriptures particularly the first five books in the Bible, the books of instruction, the books of law. And the the Jewish people spoke about this as the yoke, the yoke of the Torah, the law, the burden that the law placed upon you. And it wasn't always seen as a bad burden, but the language they used was they talked about the yoke. You would be under the yoke of the law, the yoke of the scriptures. And each rabbi would have a particular way of interpreting the law, interpreting the Torah. So a rabbi might say, the law says this, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And people would nod and agree. And another rabbi might come along and say, no, I disagree. The law says, turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. And then a discussion would ensue. 
It's important when you hear that word interpret that when somebody stands up and says, the law says, what they're really saying is, I think the law says. That's what I'm doing today. I'm offering you an interpretation on a particular passage. I think the Bible says this. What do you think? And that interpretation, that understanding, that way of presenting the, the, the law, the way to live well, to flourish in God's world, was referred to as the yoke of your rabbi. You would take the yoke of your rabbi upon you, their interpretation of the scripture, and that would be how you would live it out in the world. So when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, do you get the context in which he's talking? My interpretation, the way I understand, the way I am telling you to live, it's easy. It's a light burden. You see, we live, I think, and this is how I would understand that, we live in a society where we are told that love, acceptance and belonging is found on the other side of a mountain. It'll be found just when I get over the mountain. Once I have achieved this, once I have amassed this, once I have done this, once I have proved myself worthy, then I will find on the other side of the mountain love, acceptance and belonging. That might be when I've proved myself in my career. If you believe social media, that may be when I finally got the perfect body and the six-pack that I'm never going to get. Then, and finally then, I will be worthy of love, acceptance and belonging. When I've got the right car. It's interesting thinking about modern psychology. How many of the ailments that people struggle with, the sources of addiction, the, the mental health and the unhappiness, is people striving for love, acceptance and belonging because they didn't find it in some earlier stage in their life. Jesus' yoke, the way I see Jesus interpreting the law, is to say, friends, you are loved you are accepted and you belong because of what God has done and because of who God is and because you are a child of God. And that is your starting point for life. There is no mountain to climb in order to earn it. You do not have to prove yourself physically or intellectually or financially that you have inherent value, dignity and worth because you are a child of God, whether you realise it or not. Loved, accepted and at home. And of course, then we're to live out of that. There is a way to live from that place, a life in all its fullness, living, as Andy said, planted as close to the source as you can get, living in there in plans and full of obedience and living out of gratitude, but from a starting point of knowing that you are loved. 
that you are accepted and that you belong. That is why I think Jesus' yoke is easy and not the challenging yoke that we find so often resounding in our society around us. As I was thinking this through this week, I was reminded of a story. It's a story that some of you have heard before. I know this because I've told it here before. But some of you won't, and it'll be new to you. And it's a story told by an American professor of sociology at Philadelphia University. It's a preacher, a guy by the name of Tony Campolo that also lectures in the sociology department. And he tells a story of a day um, as a young man when he was in Chicago speaking at a conference. The conference had finished, it was late one evening and he couldn't get to sleep so he went out trying to find somewhere to eat. He says this. Up a side street, I found a little place that was still open. I went in. I took a seat at one of the stalls at the counter and waited to be served. It was one of those sleazy places that deserved the name Greasy Spoon. I didn't even touch the menu. I was afraid that if I opened it, something gruesome would crawl out. But it was the only place that I could find. The fat guy behind the counter came over and asked me, What do you want? I said, I have a coffee and a donut. He poured the cup of coffee, coffee, wiped his grimy hand on his smudged apron, grabbed a donut off the shelf behind him. I'm a realist. I know that in the back room of that restaurant, donuts are probably dropped on the floor and kicked around. But when everything is out front where I can see it, I really would have appreciated if he'd used a pair of tongs and placed the donut on a plate. As I sat there munching on my donut and sipping coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open. And to my discomfort, in marched three or four provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, and they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude, and I felt completely out of place, and was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman beside me say, Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty time. So what do you want from me? A birthday party? Do you want me to get you a cake and sing you happy birthday? Come on, said the woman sitting next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you that it's my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party. Why would I want one now? When I heard this, I made the decision. I sat and I waited until the women had left. Then I called over the guy behind the counter and asked him, do they come in here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one night next to me, does she come here every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. She comes in here every night. Why do you want to know? Well, because I heard her say that tomorrow is her birthday. What do you say you and I do something about that? What do you say we throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night in this diner? 
A cute smile crossed his chubby cheeks and he answered with measured delight, that's great, I like it, a great idea. Calling his wife, who did the cooking from the back room, he shouted, hey, come out here, this guy's got an idea, tomorrow's Agnes's birthday. This guy wants us to go in with him and throw her a party, right here, tomorrow night. And we pick up the story from here. The kind of church that throws parties for whores at two in the morning. That kind of church doesn't exist. But if it did, I might join it. Love, acceptance and belonging as the starting point of transformation. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates these verses. In his message translation, he says this, Are you tired? Worn out, burn out on, burnt out on religion. Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life and I'll show you how to take real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced Rhythms of grace. Amen. Let's just be quiet for a moment. Father God, I'm aware that so much of society tells us that if we just achieve X, if we just look like Y, then we'll finally be worthy of love, acceptance and belonging. And yet, Father God, in Jesus, you meet us wherever we are. And you declare us loved. You declare us accepted. You declare that we belong as children of God and because of what Jesus you did on the cross God help us to live out of that to know that place of love welcome and acceptance that meets us whoever we are whatever we've done and embraces and welcomes and offers forgiveness. And then says, now go live differently, change, transformed in the knowledge of God's love and God's forgiveness. Thank you, God, that that burden, that yoke is transformative. It's revolutionary. It is countercultural. And it is salvation. God help us to not be unresponsive. But to live out of that place. In gratitude and obedience to you. In Jesus name. Amen.